Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-392. This is Chris, your host, and I'll warn you right away, I'm recording outside. There's a good breeze. The humidity broke, so I went out. I'm sitting on my back porch looking at the woods, looking at my basil plants. So you're going to have to deal with the background noise, which will be, you know, people working in the neighborhood and planes flying overhead and crickets chirping and birds singing and the wind blowing all right but anyhow this is chris your host and well it's been a couple of weeks since we last talked and a couple of weeks since i finished the burning river 100 mile race and i'm back to full strength as near as i can tell i seem to have recovered very well and very quickly probably because i hiked so much of the last half of that race so today we speak with Rhonda Marie, who is a blind ultra runner who did something rather amazing this summer. She ran the last Vol State Run, which is across Tennessee, 500 kilometers or 314 miles in this race, and she did it unguided. So you're going to love this interview. My audio editor, Dimitri, even commented on how this was Super interesting. So there you go. In section one, I'll do some Q&A on the Burning River race. People send in questions, bit of a wrap-up, if you will. I'll answer those questions. In section two, I've got a short piece that <laughs> on kindness, because we all need more kindness in our lives, right? So my recovery, like I said, is going very well. I've started training again. I have some races lined up that we'll chat about later. The first week after the race, I did mostly stretching and a couple bike rides, didn't run at all. And then the second week, I started running again. And two weeks, almost exactly, from stumbling across the finish line in Ohio, I went up with some friends, and we ran the Wapak Trail course one way. And we had a blast, about nine miles, four mountains, nine miles, and I felt great, very strong. We took it easy. It was a good day. We got good weather. So what you look for when you're doing the recovery run, the way it works with ultras, it's kind of unique. It's not like being tired or being overtrained or being burnt out. 
When you go out, it's not that your legs feel tired. It's just the opposite. When you first start these runs in your recovery, your legs feel great. But unique to the post-ultra recovery runs is that somewhere in that run, your legs can go just like throwing a switch, just like that. And it's all the more telling because you feel great up to that point, and then your legs just disappear. And that hasn't really happened to me since I started back in, so I think I'm good. If you listen to any interview or story of ultra runners, when they are asked what they learned, invariably the answer is that we are stronger than we think. Our bodies are designed for this stuff, and all we have to do is train for it and ask our bodies to do it, and then we have to decide to do it. It's very mental as well. And whether it's getting up off the couch for your first run or stepping off the cliff edge into the yawning dark unknown of 100 miles or 300 miles, you can do it if you decide to. And that's it. That's what separates the finishers from those that don't start. The belief that you can do it and the decision to do it. You can do it. Just decide to do it and it's as good as done. That's the hard part, the decision. So, my friends, what hard thing are you going to decide to do today? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Okay, my friends, this is First Ultra, Burning River, question and answer. So, first question from Carlos. Burning River, why is it called this? Did you get scorched crossing the creek? Well, Carlos, as a Canadian, you are forgiven for not knowing the origin of the Burning River. The Cuyahoga River was at one time the most polluted river, or one of them, in the world. Akron, Cleveland, Lake Erie were the heartland of heavy manufacturing in the 20th century. The factory waste was just pumped directly into the rivers. And the river would have these oil-laden masses floating on the surface. These would catch fire. And that's the story. And there are at least 13 cases where the river caught fire. And yes, for some odd reason, Americans are perversely proud of having a river that caught on fire. Uh, one particularly bad fire in 1952 did heavy damage to boats and bridges. Actually burned all the boats and bridges. But it was a large fire in 1969 that actually made a difference. This was a turning point, and it caused the creation of several environmental acts. Since then, the river has been cleaned up, and much of the surrounding land is parkland that can be used for recreational activities like throwing up and passing out. Question, how was your second sunrise? Invigorating? This is Carlos again. Well, the sunrise on that second day came with about three miles left in the race, so I was pretty much done with it. It wasn't much of a celebration at that point. I will note that your body and your brain are very tightly tuned to that daily rhythm. That first night when it got dark and we were 60 to 70 miles in, my body wanted to lay down and sleep. But once I pushed through that, I woke up and it was a bit like uh, sort of a jet laggy state. And as soon as I got across that finish line, I had no problem getting to sleep, even though it was early in the morning. Question. Did you see any strange, inexplicable things in the half-light 
This is also from Carlos. Well, I've been asked this hallucinations question a number of times, and I did not have any memorable or clear hallucinations. And I think that this is because during the night I was heads down and focused on the trail all night long. So I didn't look around much. But when I did lift my head, I could see the phantoms in the shadows, so to speak. And your brain is just fried. And it tries to pattern match the trees and the rocks and the shadows. And I can see where it would be very easy to see things that weren't there. The big question, would you do it again? Well, you know, never say never. Once I hit bottom and started hiking, it got a lot easier. Getting to that point was a bit bumpy. I think if I could figure out how to spread my energy better, do more hiking, less running, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. I think with practice, my gut would adapt and I could beat the yucky stomach. And also, I'd have to figure out a solution to the undercarriage shredding. So Leanne, my friend Leanne, asked, Who did who'd you talk to? What'd you learn? Well, in the first half, I talked with a lot of people. I tried to ask questions. I tried to listen. There was a lady I remember. She was very interesting from Puerto Rico who had a lot, had run a lot of ultras. Very nice lady. There was a loud guy from West Virginia who really liked the sound of his own voice. And there were some ladies that I ran with and chatted with. There were some first timers. Some people were really dialed in with headphones in and didn't want to talk. I mostly just listened. I learned from these people some of how they got into out ultras, and I learned about what was coming up in the course and what to expect, which was helpful. I was not as chatty as I usually am in a race, and I think I felt a bit out of place and was distracted by what I was doing. You know, in a sense, I was running my own race. And when I picked up my pacers, we talked about other stuff. Kevin told me stories about his ultras. And Mike and I talked a lot about our families and such. So here's a question from Michael Deming. And he asked, did Kevin or Mike change your shoes for you? I remember Todd changing Kevin's like a champ at the Vermont 100. Sounds like no big deal to your 60 miles in. Also, having seen you run a good portion of the wine glass marathon backwards with a smile and chatting to me and other runners... Did you get to a point where you just didn't want to talk to anyone or worse? So the answer is yes. I switched out my shoes at mile 37 and Mike changed them for me. Uh, I made them take a note to remember to put my orthotics in them because I run with orthotics. Uh, Mike actually tied them too tight and I had to adjust it. But after that, I didn't change my shoes again. My gaiters, my gaiters were great. They kept the stones out of my shoes, so the gaiters were good. And like I said above, I wasn't super chatty. I had normal interactions after we started hiking, and I recovered a bit. I was pretty cranky climbing some of those hills, uh, but we passed people at the end who were shattered. Like, I was still passing people, and all you could get out of them was a grunt. So James Harris asks, and I think he asked this tongue-in-cheek, any, <laughs> any uh, chafing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My undercarriage got shredded early. And I don't want to be too graphic or specific, but I believe the clinical term for this area is the perineum? 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 Perineum. 
That whole area rubbed raw. And the crevice where my legs meet my body was a nice bit of raw, raw, raw meat there. And I also got a bit of chafing where my arms rubbed against my body. But truth be told, after the damage was done, it subsided to a dull background sting unless I tried to do something that involved sitting down or adjusting my shorts. And it hurt for a few days. And then it was super itchy for a couple days, like, like a healing sunburn. I didn't have any nipple problems, I guess because I was moving so slowly. And my belt line was fine as well. I did end up with one small blood blister right in the center of my forefoot. And I think that was from hiking so much. And I also bruised up both big toenails. Haven't lost them yet, but I might lose one of them. My friend Alex asks, What was your biggest motivation? How did the experience translate for you? A feeling of accomplishment, a recognition of your own limitations, and need for support? So it's a good question. Honestly, you may have noticed I was a bit nonplussed by the whole experience. I was motivated to run the 100 because I was feeling a bit non-directed in my life and in my running, and I needed a goal that would scare me a bit. It was definitely a big accomplishment, and I'm grateful for that. Running 100 miles makes you realize both your own limitations, or lack thereof, and the power of getting good support. James Harris again asks, when things got really tough, did you have a mantra to keep yourself moving? Uh, not so much a mantra. I was singing Grateful Dead songs out loud. <laughs> and Mike and I had the just give me three miles an hour mantra. David Murphy, who, by the way, runs the Idiots Running Club and uh, said I was an official idiot now. He asks, at what point did you realize that running a 100 miler wasn't as easy as it looks on Facebook, or maybe it was easier. Either way. Well, I think I had a, I had fairly realistic expectations going in. I knew the last 30 miles were undiscovered country. And once I hit the wall and lost my stomach in the 70s, I really let go of any time goals and just focus on moving. And that just made it simpler. And once you hit bottom, it doesn't get worse. You can just keep moving. I think it was what I expected, or at least one of the scenarios that I had prepared myself for. 30 hours is a long time. You only have to run a little bit of it to finish 100 in that time. So our old friend, the Zen runner, Adam Tinkoff, says, Not as a joke, but how did your nipples hold up? Did you tape them? Uh, like I said, I had no nipple problems. I did not tape them. I used a combination of Aquaphor and Squirrel's Nut Butter for lube. There goes an airplane. Dwayne Hespel asks, Will it be a challenge for you now to get your old marathon pace back after all that slow running? Well, like I said, I'm two weeks out now, and I feel 100% recovered. We ran nine miles in the mountain on Sunday, and I had plenty of juice in my legs. And I do believe with this base and this strength, I can do a month or so of speed work and, and get my pace back. I think having to hike those last 25 or 30 miles of the race saved my legs a little, and that'll let me recover faster. Uh, Mark Sands says, did you strictly just run, or did you incorporate core work and strength work into your training? So I ran five days a week, and I got up to two weeks that were over 90 miles with two 50-milers in them. On my off days, I did stretching and yoga. 
So Daniel asks, do you think you could do a 200? Uh, yes, I think I could. I'd have to sleep a little bit somewhere in there. But if you, if I could make the cutoff by hiking most of it, I'm sure I could go the distance. David, our friend in Canada, says, When you were at mile 75, what were your thoughts? What was your most memorable running? Oh, sorry. Was it your most memorable running experience ever? Will you write a book? Was it worth the sacrifice? What hurts most? What was your average heart rate? Did you listen to anything? So at mile 775, my thoughts were, I'm really tired and I feel awful. (laughs) I think qualifying for Boston that first time is still the most memorable running experience I've ever had. Um, I'm always writing books in my head. You know that. It was worth the training investment. I don't think I sacrificed that much, except maybe a couple weekends and a little sleep. Uh, my undercarriage hurt the most. I wasn't wearing my heart rate strap, but it felt like mid-zone one, zone two most of the time. I had music with me, but we never played any. We just listened to each other and the sounds on the course. James Harris asks again, could you have finished without your run buddies? So I wouldn't have quit. I never thought about quitting. I never wanted to get off the course, but I might have DNF by accident if they weren't there to watch me. I might have fallen asleep and not woken up or wandered so far off course they never would have found me. So these guys were outstanding. So Jane, she asked, post-race, what nutrition did you take on? And other than tired, how did you feel? So honestly, my diet was, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna use I'm gonna speak to Jane in her language because she's from Wales, I believe. My diet was shite leading up to the, to and in the week after the race. I think I would have actually done a lot better if I had practiced better nutrition going in, but I had too much on my mind to worry about it. The last week uh, or so, I've been trying to get back on the good eating wagon and uh, get off the beer, and I feel a lot better because of that. I was very tired for the last two weeks after the race, and I slept a lot, and my my brain was pretty punchy too. So, Alvaro Munoz, he said, how do you train for 100 miles? How far was your longest training run? Congratulations. Uh, so it was a lot of slow miles in the trails and back-to-back long runs on the weekends, fairly similar to a marathon training cycle with more miles and no speed work. Uh, two to three week cycles where you peak every couple weeks, then step back for a week. My longest weekends were 50 and 15 and 50 and 20, and that was a couple weeks out before the race. So that was a two-week taper. And once my body figured it out, I rather enjoyed the training. Michael asks, did you fall asleep while running? No, I did not. I remember closing my eyes, but once we got past that for a sunset, I was fine, more exhausted than sleepy. And my friend Chaney says, will you do it again? Again, someone else asked that. And that's a $64,000 question. I'm not against doing it again. Maybe 100K. I haven't run that yet. I haven't done 100K yet. Be an easy PR, right? So thank you for your interest and support. This whole training cycle was a lot of fun. And now for today's featured interview. So let's get started. Rhonda, when you uh, give me the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking. 200 words or less. Okay. So I'm Rhonda Marie Park, 
and I am a registered massage therapist uh, in Kitchener. I'm also a disability inclusion advocate, especially for sports. I do a lot of running very slowly, and I guess we're here to talk about that. Yeah, and especially your recent outing in Tennessee. We're going to call that a lovely hide-and-seek game. Yeah, that sounds like it was a combination of intense, uh, wonderful, and horrible all at the same time. I think you got it right on the nail there. Yeah, because I just ran my first 100-miler uh, a couple weeks ago, and I can't imagine doing that as a vision-impaired runner. I, I just can't imagine it because you get so tired that each foot plant kind of hurts, and if, if I couldn't see where I was putting my feet, it would make it hurt that much more when you hit the side of something or step off a curb or that sort of thing, right? So. That mental fatigue was definitely on the top list of my concerns. Make sure that I can get enough sleep that I can be aware and coherent and make safe choices as the race went on. Right, because you have to be so engaged. I mean, like, I can kind of fall asleep when I'm running an easy trail, but you have to be very engaged not only to what's spatially around you, but... Again, each footfall, you don't really have that visual feedback. You can only take the proprioception to what's going on, right? Yeah. So I would love to have a conversation about other people's running zen, right? Where you get in the moment and you're just happy to be out there and you're just running. I have no idea what that's like. That's never been a thing for me. I think running would almost be enjoyable if that could be part <laughs> of the picture. There must be some Tao or some Zen in it for you somehow if you've been doing it for these uh, couple decades almost now and you're still at it. I've only been running for 10 years and definitely I still hate it just as much today as I did the first time I went out. But it seems to make a difference in the cause for inclusion and creating this advocacy around having space in sport for people with disabilities and um, what that looks like and how we make that accessible. So it's so, important. So let's talk a little bit about the what, which is how did you get started doing this? And what's the arc of your journey to get you from where you started to uh, standing on a mountain in Tennessee? standing on a mountain in Tennessee wanting to die. I just started like every other runner. You know, you have your reasons, whether it's uh, fitness or weight loss or time for yourself, and started with the learn to run. Rock one minute, run one minute to see where it takes you from there. Achilles Canada was my in for that. They definitely worked with me not only to learn those skills, but to also learn between me and a guide runner what that would look like. So I have 8% vision. I can see better in the dark. So I would meet guide runners in on different rail trails or different roadways. And we'd figure out as we went along, I needed to know something with this much notice versus one second. I need to have that mental space to be able to move my foot around the curb or the pole or whatever was coming ahead. And the first time I went for a run, they said, so what's your first race? And I laughed because I really just wanted to see if it was even possible, right? And yeah. things went from there to your five, your 10, your 15, up to a marathon and do all the things. Yeah, the typical arc of a runner. Yes. When you get hooked. with a lot of cursing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, did you find that it was sort of how should I say that it ex expanded your? You know, we get a lot from running, right? Mentally and physically. What did you get from it? So I think it's exactly the opposite of what you get. So you go out and you have this Zen and you can just be there and think about all the things. And I find in my life, I'm always thinking about all the things. It's nice to be able to turn that off. So running, because every step has so many variables. Is it raised? Is it down? Is it trail? Is it road? Is there something coming? Is there animals? Is there rocks, roots? What, whatever's going on, I need to be right there 
right now or who knows what could happen, right? The, yeah. On the Bruce Trail, you're jumping over crevasses. If you didn't listen to your guide runner say jump one foot forward, you'd be down through the cracks 100 feet, right? Yeah, that, or you're yeah, or in down, a truck you know, down, down on the road. Down in Tennessee on a highway running That's right. in, into traffic with people going 65 miles an hour, right, on a, on a small shoulder. So I think I appreciate the fact that I can't worry about my taxes or my kids' grades in school or who's doing the dishes. or I can't. There's no space in my brain for any other stress or activity beyond just running. And then you get to appreciate what your breath feels like, what the earth is like in different situations and in different places. And, and that's pretty nice, too. Yeah, so you get a little bit of the being in the now in some of that. You know, that's the what. So talk to me a little bit about the how. How does, in a lot of times you're doing the guided running, but in this last adventure you had a crew but no guy. So how did, you, is... how did you navigate and how is that possible? You get your dogs, you get your highways, you get your cars, your crossings, you know, all that stuff. So it definitely became its own sort of subset of adventures because I didn't know. I'd never done anything like that before. Running in my neighborhood in early dawn when it's not super bright or even running a memorized route in the sunshine but way slower than normal. All of those things, they kind of fit into my life. I leave my door and I have either a guide runner with me in the daytime or I go when I can see more. Navigation because these are roads I'd never been on, I didn't know the route. I didn't preview it in any way. I tried to look a little bit at the Google Maps, and I just found that escalated my worry. I just had to turn it off. We had printed maps, section by section. So if you're going through a town, it would be pretty zoomed in, right? You might get three miles on one sheet. And if you had sections of highway that were 20 miles long, then it would just be one sheet with 20 miles of a straight line with the crossings highlighted, that sort of thing. I also had RunGo. The app was in my ear talking to me about you know, in 100 meters, make a left turn onto this road. All of that's great. It would name the road, but in the country, there isn't necessarily a street name listed on the side of the road. Those intersections and major turns became the places we would try and meet up as crew. So I crew would, uh, Chris, he would try and just meet me around the corner. And as he saw me approaching to say, I'm over this way. So I would know, yes, this is in fact my turn coming up. The only time the technology failed was when I turned it off. <laughs> But And that was just for a mile on and off course, which was interesting. But everything else became about the stepping on the road, off the road, on onto the grass if a truck was coming. Those things, I, I couldn't tell you how, except that it had to be moment by moment, depending on the sound of the traffic coming, the speed that it seemed to be coming at, whether I heard noise behind me, how much movement I had to make off the road. If you could, sometimes you couldn't. There's a guardrail there, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And sometimes stepping sideways is the worst thing you could do. That's right. Yeah. Sayonara. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you. It sounds frightening. It just sounds it frightening. It was terrifying. Yeah. 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 But good for you. You you know, not only are you running 300 miles, is you're on high alert the entire time. So that's Hyper focus. Uh, yeah. So that, that must just have been exhausting. I was happy to be home. I definitely was falling asleep in my cereal for a few days after. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did wear a bib, like an orange vest over my entire running pack that said blind on it was high reflective and that made a huge difference so people had warning they knew um, normally when i'm running a race i just have one on my back that says blind runner but this was very bold very bright very obvious and there were sections of the road like you said you couldn't step off there was nowhere to go so i would have to step into the lane to force them to go around me more than if i was just on the shoulder yeah and smile and wave yeah. and say you could hit me but that might affect your day a bit more <laughs> yeah. so, so that was 
terrifying. Yeah, I know this because I run at night, right? And um, and a lot of times I'll have a light or a reflective vest or whatever, right? But I can tell by looking at the headlights and seeing what the car is doing about, I don't know, 100, 200 feet out, whether or not they see me, right? Yeah, there's a lot of trust involved in that because I can't see the right. car's reaction and driving. Yeah. How, no, do you, how do you know? Is there some way, can you like hear the difference if somebody's coming at you? or When it's a nighttime car, you have the potential of the driver just being sleepy and not paying attention. You also have the possibility that they see a light and they come towards it, right? There's right. that exactly. tendency too. Exactly. No, I think, I don't really know. You can tell if they let off the gas a little bit. That was a very obvious change in noise. You can right. tell if they've moved over a little bit, I could see the light shift. Now, in daytime, I wouldn't even have seen that, right? It's just a noise that I'm going off of. So in those moments when I had a shoulder, I was using it for sure. If there was a place for me to step off, I just would if there was a bunch of traffic coming. Yeah. Yeah. On the sections where I had to step into the lane to force my presence as a reality, whereas I think a lot of the other runners just stayed on the rumble strip and I was like dead in it because I knew there wasn't any other way around it. I had nowhere else to go. No, I had no idea if they would actually get out of the way. It's scary today, especially with all the distractive driving, right? I have, like you said, I have people who come right at me, right? And, mm-hmm. and you end up swearing at them and jumping out of the way, but you don't you don't have that opportunity. So you're, you're running with a lot of faith, a lot of trust. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure about faith and trust. Stubbornness and something, I'm not sure. So that's the how. You had some audio cues, you had your crew, and you had um, just to be on top of it 100% of the time, which is exhausting in an ultra because your brain goes sideways and you can't trust your thoughts a lot of times, right? When you get Mm -hmm. totally depleted. What's the why for for doing this? I mean, part of what I heard you say was that no one else has the right to set your limits, right? And is that what you're running for or what you're trying to uh, impress on people? A hundred percent. I think that people with other abilities, sometimes we're raised in this culture that we're lacking something. And I think that there's so many things that are encultured structures that are not in place that we can maneuver around the fact that there isn't a safe crossing there doesn't make me disabled it or unable to cross there what the problem is is the crossing itself was designed wrong so if we didn't retrofit so many things if we just thought about how to be inclusive before we made these builds or before we had this organized sport how could we be inclusive here i think a lot of this could be dealt with beforehand but now that so many things are in place so many institutions especially in sport are in place i think there needs to be a big dialogue about how to fit the para or the special or the whatever you want to call it in that. I think I would love to see a world where you turn on TSN and the top 10 stories of the week don't just have all these abled athletes doing miraculous things, or they don't just portray one para-athlete who overcame a thing. Why can't it just be a normal situation to hear a mix of both and be excited about all of them? Hmm. To become sort of colorblind to the whole ability thing. That's right. Sorry for the metaphor there. No, it's good. So I was struck in reading your blog posts, and I think people really like your story and they like your communication because of your honesty, right? Right. Because of what you're saying is, uh, you know, how you feel right now, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. And that's, again, that's kind of scary to share with the world. It's almost like the traffic coming in the other direction. You don't know what you're going to get. So, you know, how's that experience been for you in sharing all this stuff out into the world? You almost have to put yourself out naked, right? This is what it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's absolutely terrifying. At the same time, it's extremely frustrating, and it makes me angry that I even have to deal with some of this stuff. But 
is the reality. And I definitely get just as much lashback for expressing it so boldly in some ways as I do. It's great that you're out there participating. Thanks for kind of making this path and making this more obvious way that we can create inclusion in sport. It definitely leaves you with very little room to have any kind of private sport training in your life, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I found it's if you have all that open to the universe or the public, as it will, it's hard because you have the tendency to want to sugarcoat everything or just show the good days. But I, I like the fact that you're showing the, the bad stuff, too, and asking the questions. And it's a great dialogue. I bet you've got a lot of positive, though. I bet you've got a lot of people swimming upstream. There's definitely way more positive. Yeah, definitely yeah. way more positive. And it's uh, your, your writing is very poetic. Stream of consciousness. Yeah. Well, it, you paint a lot of pictures, right? A lot of mental pictures. And I really like that, right? Because that allows people to step into your shoes and to see what you're feeling and to have almost like a painting they can step into. Right. I struggle with that because I can't see the landscape the same way I, I and in writing, especially about trail. People want to know what did that look like? What were the colors? What were the ups and downs? What did you see there? But I'm seeing two feet in front of me, right? My world is happening right there in the two feet that I can see. So in order to paint a picture of what that's like, you have to, to take all those other expectations of descriptions away. And even to describe what a guide is like, I would talk more about the way they smelled or the noises they might have made when they're talking. If they didn't actually say to me the terrain dips down a little bit, their voice would do a different kind of intonation there or the weather would give itself away after day four on a trip right you'd know there'd be some rain coming or the heat was coming back that kind of thing and I think I think that works but I always still feel like there's that piece of imagery missing that everybody's so used to having in in writing no I think you've got the imagery spot on it's just a different kind of imagery it's more of an emotional imagery and uh, I think that is very compelling for people so good for you on that so let's talk about your, how long did this take you? This 314 miles or something? Yeah, 314 miles, not including the off course. Did you get it, lost at all? Well, just when I turned my technology off the one time, when we went off course, <laughs> it went a, a mile and came back. Um, you got to get lost in an ultra. It's not a real you race have unless to. you get That's lost. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it took eight days, 16 hours, 25 minutes, and 10 seconds. And it looked like you were getting three, four hours of sleep a night, maybe? Yeah, I was trying to have four hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's not great sleep because you're so exhausted that your body's flipping out while you're trying to sleep, right? Right. Yeah, so um, like you, I, I fell asleep uh, one night this week. I closed my eyes at quarter of eight and didn't wake up till the next day, and I was rather surprised by that. After uh, doing a 100-miler a couple of weeks ago, I think I'm still catching up. So It takes so, time. <laughs> so let's go through this Vol State run here. So what do you think your lowest point was? What was that? Because in an ultra, there's always that one point where you can say that was the low point, right? I think day three-ish, I was really still trying to get ahead and get a good night's sleep. And the moment you try and put that into any multi-day ultra, you're... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't. You're in a, yeah, you can't. I'm yeah. racing. You can't set goals. Yeah. No. And the cities got further and further apart, and I was worried we'd fall behind when 10 miles, 18 miles ahead of the meat wagon. Didn't feel comfortable enough for a stop. No, we have to move further. Once you wrap your head around the idea that comfort will come when I'm finished, and I, I think day four, people were saying, isn't it great? We only have 10 or seven more days of this left. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I don't want to talk about that right now. So you knew, it, depending on how long you took, that's how far away comfort would be, right? So yeah. kind of 
getting through that space mentally, I knew that I was there for a cause, for a message, for a reason. So the idea of that being more important than any discomfort I was in was always something I carried with me, right? This is important because we're here for a reason because, and that, that always makes running easier for me. Well, it makes anything easier, right? People need mm-hmm. to have a purpose and they that's need, right. need to have community. And, uh, and that gives you that a little bit. And I think um, when I realized at about 200 miles that my right shin splint tendonitis, whatever was going on, had become something maybe more, I knew I would now have to cope with whatever that pain brought. That was a different kind of low. That was a, well, this is going to suck. Yeah. And and that's what my uh, ultra running friends always told me is that it's always going to suck. You just have to learn to embrace the suck. That's right. That's the low points. Uh, Same is true in these long races. You always have high points. So what was the high point for you? What was the the thing you remember there? Running along country road in the middle of the morning and coming across a general store in the middle of nowhere and with road workers and farmers that had all come in for breakfast. I think those spots, those places where communities seem to stop and take a breath and find a way to have life around expectations of work and family and everything. That was good to kind of come out of the running bubble, sit down and say, I would love bacon, eggs and coffee. <laughs> that's, that, that's nice. That's a nice little moment. And how about a learning moment? What would be uh, your your big learning moment? Oh, that's a tough one. I think I came out of this really feeling like I had to define strength differently. So it used to be how much strength do you have to endure this and all of its misery to get through? Yeah. And I think now I have come to a place where no strength is going to be more about celebrating the high points because that's especially for women I'm going to say that more difficult challenge we don't often give ourselves space and time to say let's celebrate this happy moment so I think especially the negative connotation for me of strength is enduring suffering that I think that's kind of stripping away a little bit and maybe this comes with a bit more self-confidence building I don't think that's about skill And, oh, look, I managed to navigate these scary roads and fend off these angry dogs and snakes or whatever. I think it's much more about not everything has to be a miserable fight against the dying of the light. We can actually embrace the happy things, too. And that can be good training. It can be rest and nutrition. It can be time with family. All the things outside of the suck. So that's a blog post right there. It definitely is. It's coming. Take those notes. Um, So any epiphanies? Sometimes when I'm out in these long adventures, I come to a point somewhere in the trail and just have this uh, bright shining moment where I have an epiphany. Do you have any of those? I have a funny one and then I have a serious one. My epiphany when the, the vultures were circling over my head and making all kinds of noise was that I need to learn more lines from the 80s songs that I love because you can't sing the same ones over and over again really loud. (laughs) So more karaoke in my life is needed. And the other one was, as much as I had gone into this adventure and felt like I needed to show that there's a struggle in everyday life with someone with vision loss, that we have to navigate this inaccessible world and there's a piece of inclusion missing there. As much as I had left my guide runners at home as much as this was supposed to be an independent struggle crossing the Tennessee River the first time I was blown away by the fact that 
I had carried everyone with me. But community, like you said at the beginning, is so important to create any change and any positive change. So as much as I was there alone, nothing can be done alone. And so that sounds like it led to some moments of gratitude. Oh, for sure. Yeah, which is very empowering gratitude. And then bacon, because so, there was a general store bacon. right after that. Gotta have bacon, yeah. <laughs> Gotta have bacon. I don't know. So let me move you towards the exit here. What specific things do you think need to be done for inclusion? That's probably the toughest question to answer, and only because disability has so many different faces. It really does. What I would need from an event is completely different from 15 other people that might participate in the same event. And that's kind of where my focus is going to go over the next year is to create more local events where inclusion is a distinct part of the event. So maybe not the big long ultras, but taking our local marathon. And we did add a vision impaired category last year, but maybe we can work towards other categories. And what does that look like? And, and try and create inclusion. The only way to make something inclusive is to be open to what people need and having a dialogue. People yeah. who have a particular need should not be afraid to say, here are my accessibility requirements, and then come to the table and say, how can we together work to create that? Right. It sounds like the answer is be willing to have that dialogue. It's definitely the first step for sure. It, it's okay to lead out these protocols of we're going to have space and we're going to do X, Y, Z. I know there are some hundreds now that are having different categories, and that's fantastic. I think every particular race has to have a dialogue between race director and disabled athlete just to see what what is that particular need. So for me on a trail, if I'm going to be running alone without a guide, I need my hiking pulse because I have to be able to feel the ground before I step in yeah. a dangerous situation. And there are lots of trail races you can't use them for, right? So and what yeah. does that look like? And can we change that? It's yeah. a very specific example of my need, but everybody's needs has to have its own dialogue. Yeah, oh, that's good Good feedback. So um, what are your links that you would like to leave people with so they can go either uh, read your blog or look up some of the, the compelling issues that you're having dialogue around? Uh, my blog is called Within Sight, and they, you can Google that. You can also go to our Facebook page we had running through the Vol State. It's just my name. And there's some links there for sure. Yep. Achilles Canada is always my go-to because if you want to get involved, or Achilles International, if you want to get involved at the ground level, how can I make a difference if it's just giving one run a week to help train a disabled athlete has a different need, a guide runner need or something. It's always the way to get in. In the States, United in Stride is a great way to get on and see what events are, have different inclusion setups. And, and again, to put yourself out there as a guide, you can do the same with triathlons. There's different... Uh, categories for those things sure yeah i see that uh, all the time in the local triathlons the local marathons so that's actually gave me an idea i should go i've never guided anybody i should learn how to do that it's an adventure yeah i bet it is i you know my first thought is is terrifying it's like i'd be terrible at this how could anybody rely on me for this so that's good that means i should lean into it right usually the fear is the way right for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So anything else you want to leave folks with? I think just try and be open-minded about what someone might need. If you're seeing someone with um, with a different ability out there, always just approach and ask because you won't know if you don't have that conversation. And, and that's the best way to give back is to figure out how you can be of use there. So I usually wrap uh, up with a, the same sort of question, which is uh, what have you learned from all this? How to fend off dogs. No. <laughs> With the pepper spray. With pepper spray. 
bacon. Bacon works better. I think See, but, but if you sit down and eat the bacon, then you smell like bacon. And the dogs want you. So that's well, then they're not coming out with snarling teeth. They're coming out <laughs> licking their chops. It's a bit different. Uh, I think my biggest takeaway goes back to that moment on the Tennessee River, that it takes a community, that you, you have to embrace being part of a thing to create change. And I know a lot of us struggle to try and do things on our own. And even in a 100-mile race, even in a 5K race, you're never on your own. There's always your family that helped you through the training. There's always your community that's put on the event that is offering the space to do that. And I think my takeaway is is that you have to be part of it. can't just sort of let it go by. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today. Enjoy Thanks the rest for having of your me. Day. You too. And uh, good luck with your adventures, my friend. <laughs> rest and recovery and more bacon. More bacon. More bacon. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. We'll see ya. Yep, bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Be kind. You are the center of your world, but you are not the center of the world. How much of what we suffer from today as a society comes from lack of kindness? Maybe we can start a new wave of respect and attention that can turn this unkind tide. It's hard to be kind when you feel you're under attack. The constant barrage of negative attack messaging is designed to cull us from the herd and make us feel weak and vulnerable. And that's a challenge because kindness requires strength. Kindness requires an outward focused and trust that only comes with the solidly grounded. It's harder to be kind than it is to be angry and afraid. Kindness cannot exist with anger and hate. By practicing kindness, we rob the anger and the hate of its strength. Our kindness is the eraser to hate's stark black lines. Acts of kindness require an inner harmony, an inner strength, and a confidence. We must be at peace with ourselves, comfortable in our own skins, to offer kindness to others. Kindness is an outward act. It is an interaction with the world. We use kindness as a projection of our inner strength and confidence, and by doing so, We influence the world around us. Through acts of kindness, we bring kindness into the broader world. Kindness is a communal antibody. Kindness released infects the anger and hate around us and slowly builds complementary companions as it is played forward. Kindness is community. It is community based on core strength, an act of love. Think of kindness as a glowing halo in a sea of polluted water. Kindness is a position of strength. Kindness acted upon is more infectious when it is broadly applied, regardless of caste or class. Kindness to an old dog is kindness all the same. It creates the same karmic ripples in the universe. It fights the same fight. And kindness does not mean that you are abdicating your rights to someone else's power. You can be kind and still say no. 
You can be kind and still take a stand for what you believe in. In fact, the kindness softens the edge of these things and takes the sting out. It's not personal. You can be kind and strong. I would argue that being kind in these situations requires more strength than reciprocating the hate. But be sure to check yourself. Be sure you are not using kindness as a weapon from a position of power. That's not kindness. That's being a passive-aggressive a-hole. Kindness from a position of inner strength is much different than kindness deployed as an act of power. Make sure your kindness is a true gift without expectation of recompense or return, because you are strong enough and wise enough to understand that your gift of kindness is given without expectations, and the response to it has no reciprocative power over you. Just be kind to everyone, consistently, and that karma will come back around. So today, as you rush through your busy life, take the time to be kind. Start with those you live with, your family, your friends, your support system. Don't just rush by with a grunt. Take the time to look them in the eye and say please and thank you and maybe even I love you and I'm grateful to have you in my life. And put a strong hand on a loved one's shoulder and look them deeply in the eye in the soul. Give hugs if it is appropriate. Take a beat, take a breath to truly be present with them in this kindness. And as you wander out into the world, take your kindness with you. Nod and smile to the commuters you let in to the traffic flow. Make eye contact. Remember to pause and say something nice. Notice something positive. Ask a question that they care about. Because today you have the power to be the antibody to the hate and anger. Today you can fight back by bringing kindness into your world. Today you can be the ripple in the pond, the small stone that starts the avalanche of kindness. And it will make you feel wonderful. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have stumbled along a highway shoulder to the end of episode 4-392. Be careful out there. So Ronda Maria's is fairly amazing, huh? Right? I felt seriously out of my depth with her. I think I'm going to try to see if I can't um, figure out how to be a guide runner for Boston this year or next year, depending on how you look at it. I'm training again. I signed up for a few races. I'm going to run the Wapak Trail Race on Labor Day weekend. It's my club's race. I love this race. I'll go up early. I'll help set up, park cars, and then run the race. And I'm looking forward to it. I should have some good juice in my legs from all the miles I did this summer. Uh, you should come up and join me. It's 18 miles. Uh, you can do it as a relay, too. You can do it as two nines. Uh, very, very uh, technical course, covered mountains, trails, rocks. Beautiful course. And then I also agreed to run a Ragnar the weekend of September 21st with my coach up in New York. So treat myself to a little adventure there. And finally, I signed up for the Bay State Marathon again. 
It's my go-to marathon for requalifying, and I figured, why complicate things, right? I was thinking about going to a travel race, but why complicate things? It's in my backyard. As a matter of fact, it goes right by the front door where I'm working now. So I'll take a shot at getting my number for 2020. My buddy Brian, he's running too, and we'll see if we if I can get enough speed back by the end of October. After the successful outing on the Wapak Trail, I told Coach I was ready to get back to work, and he gave me a couple of workouts for this week as if to test me. First one was a one-hour and 40-minute step-up run on Tuesday, and I went into this run feeling pretty dead, and I didn't have much hope for being able to step up to the zone three effort for 30 minutes and then up to another four to five, zone four to five for another 30 minutes. And that's a hard workout. And uh, I felt really heavy and my heart rate never came down. My heart rate was super high. I figured I'd just do what I could and see how far <laughs> I could get into it, right? How long I can keep my legs turning. And as I stepped up the effort, my legs were surprisingly strong. I was you know, I wasn't going very fast, but I was able to hold a decent effort level for the last hour of the step up. And looking at the results, I wasn't moving very well, but I'm happy with the effort two weeks out from 100, right? And then Friday night, he gave me a, a track workout. I went down to my local track and knocked out some speed work. And I did a ladder workout. 2 by 600 2 by 800 and 2 by 1000 and I was able to hang in there. Again, it wasn't pretty. The mechanics felt quite foreign, and I was felt like I was leaning back too much, and I was swinging my arms around a lot, and my butt muscles were sore afterwards, and, you know, the paces I was pulling out were not world-class. A uh, bit of irony there that I'm able to do uh, tempo work at about the same pace, I, I believe I've I've ran marathons at 10 years ago, but uh, that's neither here nor there. It's going to take a while for me to get some speed back, but I think I'll be fine. Everything feels okay. So I had a one-day trip to Orlando this week. It's about a three-hour flight from Boston, and I got up early, drove into the airport, flew down. We had meetings, then lunch, then we flew back, and that put me out of the airport in Boston around 7.30, and getting home, you know, around 8. And I was pretty wiped out. So I figured I'd order a pizza to pick up as I whizzed by on my way out to the suburbs. So I called up Siri, and I asked her to call the pizza place for me. I was in my truck on the highway and didn't want to be too distracted by the phone. And I got the guy on the phone, and we had the following conversation. I'd like to order a mushroom pepperoni pizza. Sure. Name? First or last? Okay, 15 minutes. And they hung up. So when I got to the pizza place that I thought I'd ordered from, I found out that Siri and I had different ideas on that. She gave me the number of another pizza place. Still in town, but a little far away. And it was late. I was almost home. And I thought about just bailing out on the whole scheme. But I knew across town... 4.4 miles away, a pizza place had made a pizza for me. So I bit the bullet and drove over there. Good karma. 
When I got to the other pizza place, I went in, apologized for being late, and asked if there wasn't a mushroom pepperoni pizza here waiting for me. And he said, what's the name? And I said, I don't know. You asked me for my name. I said last or first, and you said 15 minutes and hung up. So he didn't have a mushroom pepperoni pizza, but he did have a sausage pepperoni pizza for Lester. (laughs) Lester. (laughs) And we agreed that was probably me. And he felt bad about making the wrong pizza and gave me a discount and... I didn't tell him that I never meant to order a pizza from him to begin with and was just barely able to drag the willpower up to not stiff him with it at the end of the day. And the karma balances out even when ordering a pizza. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he left. So hard it made him cry. Chasing me around, woman.